0: If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. Hello again, dear listener. This is your host, Andrew Scottsco. Welcome to the second and final part of this conversation on the meta skill of Flow with Rian Doris and Connor Murphy, co-founders of the Flow Research Collective, along with their partner, Stephen Kotler. Flow Research Collective is a research and training company at the bleeding edge of flow research and applied cognitive science globally. They are leaders in the research on the neurophysiology of flow, that is, what's happening in the brain and the body, and they help companies around the world leverage that research towards more peak performance. They work with organizations around the world such as Formula One, Deloitte, the University of Southern California, UCLA, Imperial College London and their work has been featured globally in very fancy publications you've probably heard of, such as Time Magazine, National Geographic, Forbes, Fortune, TED, Harvard Business Review, the list goes on. These guys really know their stuff. Now, if you're just tuning into this conversation, you may want to go back and listen to the previous episode, as it actually lays a lot of conceptual foundations. But I will say, this second half of the conversation jumps around a fair amount and is quite actionable. So of course, feel free to enjoy it all on its own. That being said. Please enjoy the second and final part of this conversation on flow with two of my favorite humans, Rhian Doris and Connor Murphy.
1: And then we, we can go deeper into the triggers. I mean, another, well, another
2: on. one I think that's worth touching on is clear goals. Mm. And it's super helpful, I think, for knowledge work specifically. So, um, I mean, it's, it's basic, but essentially clear goals is just having a very clear, specific goal for whatever task that it is you're engaging with or doing at the moment so when the goal is clear the mind doesn't kind of wander you don't go into high level analytical mode of kind of being concerned about exactly what it is that you're supposed to be doing and what the purpose of it is, but you're able to just kind of focus, hone in and drop straight into whatever it is that you're doing. So making a very intentional effort to always have extremely, extremely clear goals with respect to anything you're doing, I think Could
0: helps. Could you give a, a concrete example? Cause I've heard you talk about this elsewhere. And, and one of the things I there's two, two things I'd like you to go deeper on as it relates to the clear goals. But one was the distinction between, I think this is in a recent newsletter you all did between sort of high level hard goals and like clear goals, because I think people hear clear goals and I can imagine 10 people having 10 different interpretations of what that means. (laughs) Yeah. So if you could make that distinction there and then give, if you give a, a concrete example, when you say clear goal, what does that actually look like it versus what someone might be thinking?
2: Yeah. So obviously there's different kind of levels of goals. And we um within the Flow Research Collective start at what, what Stephen calls your massively transformative purpose, which is your, you know, your overall overarching life vision mission that is essentially endless. It's kind of like a infinite game type thing. Then you've got your high hard goals, then maybe ten year goals, five year goals, one year goals, and then it just kind of cascades down to Usually the immediate task level of, okay, I want to spend two hours doing X. And then within that, you need clear goals. And I think most people go wrong with clear goals by not making them clear enough. They need to be hyper kind of freakishly clear down to an insanely detailed level. And a good proxy for knowing whether your goals are clear enough is whether you feel a sense of resistance. To doing the task, so if you feel resistance if you feel this kind of desire to procrastinate or if you feel like you can't just kind of effortlessly slip and sink right into what it is that you're doing you probably haven't set enough time getting crystal clear on the goals of the task the exact first thing you need to do to start the sub components of the task so let's take an example like writing rather than saying you know i'm going to write for two hours you say Uh, okay, I'm going to write 700 words. And the first step is going to be writing the six outlines. The second step is going to be researching the material I need to populate each of those outlines. The third step is going to be doing an edit of outline one, the fourth step, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just all locked out. And so all of that, again, high level kind of analytical work is done and separated out. And then you can just drop into the actual execution of what it is. So another way I like to think about it is separating strategy and execution. And that's super helpful. So get all that stuff done and then boom, just mindlessly mm. hence flow drop into the actual execution of the thing.
1: Right. My simple rule of thumb is um, if at the end of that task, Like in, if I'm asking myself, you know, I'm looking at my to-do list, like, did I complete this task? If I'm sitting there wondering if I completed the task, the goal wasn't clear enough. Yeah, right. Exactly. Oftentimes, like, you know, if, if the goal is like, okay, I need to do research on this, right? Like I, I need to like do like research on like this subject matter in order to be able to do the next step of this project. Um, for that, like I always need to time box that. I'm always like, okay, I'm going to do one hour of research. I'm going to cap it at that. And so that way I'm not sitting here being like, oh, did I actually complete that goal? Right. Like, in, so that's like the general rule of thumb that makes it really, really helpful for yeah. me. Um, I like but that. I think the other thing that's like really helpful to talk about, it, it and I don't think enough people talk about this in the flow community, um, which is like entropy versus flow. So we yeah. talked a little bit about... Um, like flow is a spectrum from micro flow to macro flow and macro flow are, you know, these, you know, incredibly intense states that oftentimes, you know, like a lot of people describe them resembling some sort of mystical state, right? So like macro flow is qualitatively different from micro flow, but what's the opposite of flow? Um, and I th- I think that's like a really important question to ask. And and so what Chick Send High talks about in some of the original research is you know it's about entropy versus flow. Hmm. And so if you think about like a like like cognitive entropy as you know your mind is like kind of scattered between a number of different things, right? Your mind is a goal directed system, right? So it's looking for goals, and maybe you're scattered between a number of different goals. You don't know what like you actually want to spend time on. Like if you think about like your like how entropic your like mental state is and. Uh, apologize if i'm being too esoteric you mean sort of like scattered exactly exactly because like you waste so many resources worrying about things that you shouldn't be worrying about or thinking about things that you shouldn't be thinking about in flow is to a certain extent the opposite of that right because in flow like you know flow is a game of attention it's when your attention is completely focused on the present and when your attention is completely focused on the present you're not worrying about the past you're not worrying about the future like you're you're um you're not wasting all of these cognitive resources just burning calories on you know static and entropy basically right and so it's though, so like the, the the mechanism of clear goals is designed to leverage that goal-directed system and get you as focused as possible um on one given thing um so that you know you're not burning too many calories on the noise
2: yeah you, you want to sort of proactively facilitate the presence or flow by getting that like entropic worth work out of the way in advance constantly systematically as just part of your process rather than you know the first half of your workday involving doing that you should have a process in place that gets that stuff done separately consistently so that again you can just drop straight in so how do you two do that like what's your
0: process for doing that on a regular basis
2: I every night I'm 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 pretty extreme with it. Um
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, to the point the point you made earlier, like people underestimate the power of taking simple things to extreme yeah. levels. So right. maybe this is a yeah, good well, case. Yeah, story. and
2: it's a good point. I mean, a lot of this stuff, a lot of our training, you know, I think when we talk about flow and we go into the neuroscience of it, people assume that the training is going to involve all of these really complex, mysterious, you know, in-depth Bizarre hacks and tools and tips, but a lot of it is extremely simple stuff that oftentimes is so simple people underestimate its effect or efficacy. Um so what I do, I have kind of two I have a weekly well, I have a monthly process as well for it, but I have a weekly process for basically mapping out my entire week in blocks and I call that like my kind of strategy session. I usually do that on a Sunday morning. And so I'll map out the week at a high level, all of what I need to do, all of my goals and try and block it all straight onto my calendar. And that means I can hit Monday morning without wondering anything really. And obviously there's movement there. You know, I need to be able to adapt to what's actually happening during the week. But it gets all all of that stuff out of the way in advance of the week so that I can get in and just execute and forget about, you know, where I'm going or what I'm doing or what path I need to take. I'm just running down a path for the entire week. Um, And then I do a smaller micro version of that every night. Like a, I call it like a power down ritual kind of thing, where basically I'll finish the work day, review what I've done, look at, you know, the weekly objectives, map them all out. And then in pretty, extreme detail calendar the next day um, usually by the hour depending on the task and I'll set clear goals for each task that evening as well and line up everything that's needed to begin those tasks again a huge part of procrastination and a huge part of people's challenge actually getting into work is that they've got all this like clutter they need to deal with before they can start the thing they're actually supposed to be doing so you want to get all that stuff done ideally the evening before and you want to get clear on what it is that you're doing and then you wake up in the morning all of that, your previous self has taken care of all that high level work and you can just drop straight in and execute. And it makes a huge difference I find for flow. And then also, I mean, outside of flow, it's very helpful for just, you know, generally working on the right thing is kind of picking or defining or identifying the unlocking moves that are going to be more effective for your overall long-term goals so flow is conducive to just better decision making anyway even though you're you know you're doing that decision making not necessarily in a flow state the night before or on your sunday morning session
1: right yeah I, um yeah so, so my um the, the process that i use closely mimics uh, Rianne's, but for me, like it, it's really helpful to differentiate convergent and divergent tasks. Mm. And, and I, I think like that, that distinction is so important. And so for instance, uh, for divergent tasks where you're, you know, creatively trying to think of, you know, what am I going to do? Like you're like, you know, creative problem solving yeah. for that. Like people are, you know, you, you follow these circadian rhythms, right? Day after day, Um, and people are systematically better at doing one or the other in the morning or the evening. Mm -hmm. And so generally speaking, people tend to be better at divergent tasks, right? Creative problem solving, strategizing, that sort of thing in the afternoon. Um, and they tend to be better at convergent tasks where, right, where they drill down into a given domain with some, you know, narrowly defined clear goals in advance in the morning. And so like like that that's the strategy that I use which is yeah. you know you, you need some sort of block of uninterrupted time like first thing in the morning those clear goals should always be determined the night before so similar to what Rihanna's saying you're not just spinning your wheels trying yeah. to figure out what you should focus on because that's the worst right. use of time possible And so like, like drilling down into that first thing in the morning and then in the afternoon, taking that for your like strategizing, figuring out what you're going to do in the next day, that sort of thing is just so crucial.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, yeah. Strategy is, is, um, divergent execution is convergent is another way to think about it. And A lot of people who don't have the language of flow talk about and advise you to do very similar things. Like I think it's Paul Paul Graham has an amazing article called um, maker versus manager schedule. And he advises you to do basically a very, very similar thing, which is that in your, in your, during your morning block, you really protect your time. You protect your attention. You do all of your proactive long-term high impact work. And then you switch modes into a more divergent mode for your manager's schedule for the second half of the day. And you do more of the reactive busy work that, you know, requires less kind of attentional depth and more just, you know, kind of immediate rapid fire.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think another, another, um, resource for people that I'm pretty sure we've Either all read or are fans of is Cal Newport's deep work. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, Phenomenal. As you're talking, I'm like, I'm pretty sure we all worship at the church of
1: Cal <laughs> <Yeah>. Newport. <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's so
2: it's so good that yeah. <laughs> I, I think actually he doesn't he, literally, he did not put the word flow in it once. I've done really? a control <laughs> on the, ibook, the, the, the word flow is not in there once, which is, which is funny, but it's an amazing manual for hacking flow for knowledge workers. I think it's like one of the best go to resources. So <laughs> definitely people who want to get this. When you're talking about your
0: your, your kind of your weekly daily cycle there, I'm like, this sounds really familiar from, from some of (laughs) your stuff. I was like, Oh, you've, you've taken his stuff and you've like supercharged it with flow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And just one more thing uh, to add to that. So I'm going to completely misattribute and, and uh, like bastardize this quote. Um, but it was about formulaic writing. Um, and so it, like, I, I forget who actually uh, this quote originates from, but the idea was that, um, you know, like s- somebody was being very critical of formulaic writers and the response was like, well, what's wrong with a good formula, <laughs> right? And, <laughs> it, 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 I thought that was like such a good response. Um, and so when it comes to uh, setting clear goals and it comes to the habit formation, right? Like it seems dry to be doing the same thing day after day after day, but like what's wrong with a good formula, right? And, and once you get that, formula down correctly and you just look for all these subtleties and differences like in that formula it's an incredibly satisfying place to be yeah. and from a productivity perspective from like a goal orientation yeah. perspective right like one of the biggest questions is like am i focusing on the right thing yeah. and like if you wake up first thing in the morning and like you start doing something and you're like oh shit wait am i focusing on the right thing that is the wrong question to be asking right. because then you're just spending too many of your cognitive resources yeah. wondering that yeah. um, and so i mean I, I come from you know background in uh, software tech development and like where you know agile methodology is king and you see the way that these agile projects are managed and a good manager of an agile project will use pure agile right and so you set up a sprint in advance a sprint can be an arbitrary length of time but let's say it's you have a one week long sprint so you set all of the expectations for that week of time in advance um, and then you go and you like execute on that and have a retrospective at the end of it and so like the good project managers are the ones who like come in and they're like okay we're going to like, you know, set the expectations and we're going to go through this week. Um, and the bad project managers are the ones who don't stick to that methodology and halfway through they're like, oh, but by the way we need to change this expectation over here. And like, the the impact that that has is all of a sudden you have to yeah. do a context switch. And context switches are so expensive. And so if you don't set the preconditions right and commit to those preconditions, and you have to spend time trying to figure out, oh, am I doing the right thing? Oh shit, maybe I should be doing this thing over here. Like, you're just going to be wasting time. Um, and so like that like that structure of like absolutely knowing that when you're working on a thing you're working on the right thing just saves so much of that cognitive entropy that yeah. we were talking about a moment ago
0: but one of the things that's occurring to me as i'm listening to you is like oh man that's interesting maybe someone one of the upsides when people sort of push back on like well why do we have to do this in advance it's like well think about how much more fun your week is going to be when you don't have to contact switch yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. We just drop in and you just get to go ride that zone for the week. Yeah. That's that's awesome. The context,
1: switch is so expensive, right? Like, like all the psychology research supports the fact that like, if we have to switch between contexts, like, you know, we we drastically reduce like the amount of, you know, effort we're able to like actually put into the task that we want to complete. And like, you know, the, 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 like, so there's a lot of back and forth on what multitasking is, right? Like, like, can we actually multitask? Like technically, yes, we can, right. You know, there, there's something about like, we, we can pay attention to something without giving it our full attention. However, like a lot of multitasking is actually quickly switching back and forth between like a task in a short period of time. And like, that's just an expensive, expensive operation to be in.
2: Yeah. Cal Newport actually, funnily enough, in deep work talks about attention residue. I can't remember that. Sophie Leroy is the researcher. I can't remember where she's out of, but she kind of coined the term and it, she refers to context switching, you know? So let's say you start work on task A and then you go to task B, even just for five minutes, and then you go back to task A, a certain residue or percentage of your attention is going to be fractured and left hanging on task B that you switched into. So even if they're both high priority, super productive, important tasks, you want to knock them out sequentially so you don't kind of rack up attention residue throughout and then constantly kind of, you know, trickle
0: away your attention
2: as you go. So this is sort of like the
0: science behind the, the, you know, well-worn and... Good advice to like single task, like single single task, (laughs) do one thing, finish it, then this is why. But but
1: like further to your comment about like tech personalities and, you know, strategic thinking versus, you know, convergent thinking, like, um, one thing that I think a lot about is there was a Harvard business review, um, study that was looking at what are the best, uh, correlates to long-term business success. And like what they found was the best, uh, correlates to long-term business success is cognitive flexibility. Right. It's, it's it's like, it's the ability to deal with uh, gray areas effectively. Yeah. And like that, like one thing that I think is a true mark of maturity. And, you know, if you, if you work in tech, you're used to working with younger personalities, right? Like at at least when you're working in the Bay, because you know, the average age there is so young. Um, And like the, the mark of kind of that, that, that youth and like that lack of fully developed maturity is uh, optimizing for, you know, one metric or two metrics or, a a narrow number of metrics, right? Whether that's, you know, career success or their financial situation or whatever else. And I see this like across the board time and time again. And like, as you grow in maturity, you're optimizing for more and more things over time. And so your ability to kind of deal with gray areas and deal with a more complex optimization strategy where like now I'm not just optimizing for my career, but I'm optimizing for my career, plus my relationships, plus my physical health, plus whatever else. Like you'll see that come over time, but that takes a lot of will to work with gray areas and like i've been on you know a number of different hiring panels you know over the course of my career um just because i really enjoy it like i really enjoy doing interviews with candidates and getting a sense for how they might work in an organization um and when you're on like in those conversations and you see the way all these managers think a lot of them are like really like they don't use this language specifically most of the time but they're looking for that cognitive flexibility of like okay this person is great you know they did their phd in physics but can they switch context from doing like you know having had like this incredible success um in academia to being an industry or being an industry in this specific domain and like that's a huge thing that you need to be able to cultivate over time
2: yeah right exactly and it goes back to meta skills and the primary competencies you know if you have those like those base foundational things at play like the ability to use your cognition effectively the ability ability to be creative drive yourself into flow it's going to facilitate and enhance your ability to do well or, you know, win even as a matter scale across different domains, different areas, different tasks, et cetera. Yeah.
0: Totally. Yeah. So, so I want to, um, I want to kind of do, make this ultra concrete, right? Mm-hmm. Cause I, this is one of those things where it, it can, if not handled right, I feel like it can go, it can go in the fuzzy direction and Please. then people won't really like grab it and run with it. And that's really <laughs> what I want for people and mm-hmm. and for, for all of us as well. So, Let's do a quick case study and let's, ima- I want to give you guys a case and I want to just throw it at you and sure. like, let's just imagine how you would go. So let's take the tech example, mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of people like in that world who listen to this, this show, mm-hmm. uh, let's take a product manager, right? So this is someone who has to basically interface between many groups of stakeholders, many people they work with from engineers to business people, to internal and external to customers. So they're just very, there's a lot of scatteredness there, uh, how would you sure. remake that person's day, so, so to speak?
1: I mean, I, I can respond from my own personal experience because uh, cause this is pretty challenging, right? So, like, first off, is like, like. E- notifications are by definition you know the opposite of what you should be doing if you're looking to leverage attention at the yeah. present right because it's just going to you know pull you out of any state that you're in um and it takes you a while to get back into flow if you can't even find flow again once you've been interrupted so, um,
0: so is it fair to say just as a quick just a precondition kind of thing here I, I know you guys have said flow follows focus a bunch of times here so mm-hmm. it seems like the overarching principle is that this is a game of attention and whatever it is you end up doing, whether it's on the list of, flow, of published flow triggers or not, like this is all a game of driving your attention fully into the present. Yeah, moment. Right. And exactly. All the
1: triggers do are they help you drive that attention. And so like, if you're using risk as a flow trigger, you know, it's like risk is one of the most potent ones you can use, right? Risky as we discussed earlier, but like it's one of the most potent ones that you can use. And so, Like all of these things are just designed to allow you to improve the amount of focus or the amount of attention that you're spending on the present moment. Um, And so like when it comes to like notifications, first off, you know, like obviously all of those notifications should be silent as much as possible. Um, But one thing that I found in my own experience, because I do, um, I manage a number of different data science projects. I do a lot of different consulting uh, or I'm in a lot of different consulting environments. And oftentimes you're on client sites, you're interacting with all different stakeholder groups. You're not able to control your environment in the same way that you can. If you're, you know, if you're a programmer who's working remotely, who's able to to, you know, deep dive into things for an extended period of time. Um, and the, the heuristics or the rules of thumb that I've found to be most effective in those cases is, uh, still to, you know, silence all those notifications for anybody that you're interacting with. You know, you give them your undivided attention. Um, and you have to be very good at boundary setting as well. Um, and so like, like boundary setting when you're dealing with new clients is like challenging to do. Um, but you just have to get very good at, you know, setting aside time that allows you to actually do the thing that you do Mm -hmm. um but part of it i think is you know if if you get into that mindset of when i do this thing and it is trying to scatter me because you know you walk into an office of you know one of your clients and then this person sees you as an expert in this field and so they try and pull your attention in this way and then somebody else is trying to pull their attention this way and they're trying to change the scope of work and so like you have to do this thing rather than that thing um like, just like making sure that you're giving things your undivided attention, um, is challenging to do. But I think, like, I, I've been able to find flow in those projects, um, by, Kind of celebrating the novelty behind it and celebrating the fact that, you know, all of these things are constantly changing. And so, for instance, like, like one analogy I really like to use is, um, you know, I'm a long-term meditator. I've been meditating for over half a decade at this point. And, uh, when I first started meditating, um, I was living in Chicago. And so I, the, one of the few periods of time that I would have was on the train on my way to work in the morning. And so I would try and meditate in that environment and it's loud and there's chaotic and there's all sorts of stuff going sure, on, but yeah. it, it's the same underlying problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you be present in this, in the context of all of these changing variables around you? Um, and one of the quotes that came to mind uh, when I was in that state uh, or when I was in that um, uh, period of my life was uh, the world is your singing bowl right and so if you think of like meditation right like you use a, a singing bowl right like you know at, at the end of a meditation period at the beginning of a meditation period whatever it might be um, and that is a tool that's a mechanism that's designed to kind of you know indicate that the meditation session has started or it's ended and so it's designed to focus your attention Um, and so that quote like the world is your singing bowl is a way of saying that you know even amongst all of those distractions you can use that as a focusing agent in order to be able to to your ability to still focus, still maintain flow in a chaotic environment, because a lot of what we're doing is we're teaching people to be more anti-fragile, right? We're teaching people how to retain their integrity in really challenging chaotic environments. And so if you're an executive working in that environment, you have to deal with a tremendous amount of chaos, right? Um, and so maintaining your integrity in the face of that is something that you build over time, but changing, reframing the situation as like these distractions are actually designed as a practice that allows me to refocus my attention, um, rather than a distraction. I think that reframing exercise alone is one way that you can make these con, uh, these concepts a lot more concrete, even if you're not able to control every aspect of your environment in the way that say that programmer who works from home is able to do.
2: Yeah. Well, one point I would actually add funnily enough is literally just that in the same way that certain activities are more rich in flow triggers, some professional situations or setups or roles are actually just literally just more challenging to get into flow in, you know, so it's as simple as that. But once you know the triggers, once you know how you can drive yourself into flow, you can actually begin to like select for certain roles based on how they're going to help and facilitate you dropping into flow. Like I often... Used to, for whatever reason, use the example of a property developer with an activity or a, or a job. Maybe I'm totally wrong on this because I've never done it, but that, that I imagine would be less, um, conducive to flow in that you're kind of on the phone for five minutes and then you're in the car for a little bit going to, you know, visit a site and then you're talking to another person. You're on a deal. So I just, th- I think there's just less room or scope for being able to drop into flow in certain roles. And obviously everything. Connor's pointed to I think will help and assist no matter what the situation is but it is also important to be aware of that fact and then another thing I would add that can make a difference regardless of of how conducive to flow your specific role or situation is, is the idea of flow proneness and basic flow hygiene. So we're evolutionarily wired for flow, at least that's what we hypothesize. Your your system wants to drive itself into flow, but a lot of people's basic habits and ways of living and lifestyles make that extremely difficult. They're constantly fighting their biology rather than leveraging their biology to drive themselves into flow. So for example you know, maybe they just did they sleep terribly. And, you know, if you're massively underslept, massively over caffeinated, and you can't even hold focus on something for a few minutes because you're just exhausted, you're less likely to get into flow. If you've got really severe back pain because you sit all the time and you don't use a standing desk and you don't do any kind of physical mobility work, that back pain is going to be gnawing at you, fracturing your attention and making it less likely that you can drop into flow. You know, if you eat a sugary donut or whatever at 11 o'clock at lunch and you get a splitting headache an hour and a half later the chances are that you're less likely to get into flow so you want to be aware of all these like systemic holistic habits and behaviors that i think can heighten your flow proneness in general so they're almost like a backdrop to the flow triggers um and the more on point you get with all of those, again, basic like peak performance habits, the more likely you are to get into flow and the more your system is kind of wired and set up and primed to be able to get into flow.
1: Right. And I just to add one more thing. So we talked about the challenge skill balance as being the golden rule of flow if you're in a chaotic environment like that where you know you're dealing with tons of different stakeholders colleagues you know managers whatever it might be um you need to leverage a lot of the strategies from group flow instead hmm. which operates a little bit differently hmm. yeah talk and, about that. And, and so um so group flow so, so just as individual flow like challenge skill balance is you know the golden rule for group flow which is you know f- uh, flow that a, a a group of people get into and probably the best example of this is surgeons right with surgical teams they're all all so focused on a shared goal, um, that those teams just get into flow like nobody else because they have a shared level of expertise, right? They all know exactly what's happening. They have a shared goal, right? Which is to complete that surgery. Um, they have a common vocabulary. Um, and so like leveraging those sets of triggers is very important. Um, but the, the, let's say the golden rule of group flow is, uh, the so-called yes and principle, And so this comes straight out of improv, right? And so like in in improv, any conversation you have is always additive. And so like, um, you know, I, if if say your the setup for your improv game is you know uh you have an old man who's sitting on a bench and somebody walks up to them uh and makes some sort of comment right like the old man can't just sit there and be like oh no i'm impervious for, to everything like i'm not going to respond to that right um like your conversations that you have when you're trying to maximize for group flow are always additive and so you're always saying yes and you're contributing something to that conversation and so like you can see this in a number of different ways I mean you can literally say yes and to somebody nah, and, yeah. and, and it's crazy how like infectious that becomes in conversations when you do that um, you can use language of like oh I agree with you and I would add right like like all of that language like it makes other people feel validated it makes them feel like you're understanding what they're saying if you're mimicking their gestures or if you're uh, you know summarizing what they said back to them it gives them a sense of like oh yeah you understood what I said and you're adding yeah. something to it and so like be Being able to leverage that of like always kind of saying yes and then adding something to it um, just allows you to tap into flow when you're in more of those dynamic environments.
2: I did it, did an improv class actually, funnily enough, last week for the first time. And he was talking about yes and, and we were doing these like live, uh, two person improv stories. And I noticed myself constantly not yes anding and like trying to cut the dude down. (laughs) And I realized it was interesting to realize during it that it's actually like being Irish and the whole kind of banter culture (laughs) that is, is literally the opposite of yes and. Wow. I was like, I noticed my mind being like, how can I take the piss out of this dude? (laughs) How can I cut him down? Rather than how can I yes and them? So it's interesting to notice as well. Like there's obviously these cultural influences for all of this stuff too. So that, that's fascinating. 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 That. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah. So it seems like to to your point, Rian, you made a, a minute ago, like there's kind of the like table stakes sort of flow hygiene, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And, and it seems like it would sort of fall into the, the, like the buckets of like, you know, body, mind and, and attention, which is sort of mind, but we'll split it on its own. It's, mm-hmm. you know, bodies like sleep exercise nutrition are you in pain have you moved today yeah <laughs> uh, mind is you know um we've talked a lot about distractions and attention but one thing i've heard um heard or seen crop up in the research was a- around things like more of some of the, the positive psychology practices around like gratitude and and mindfulness and, and actually having social contact and things like that um do those actually play a role in in flow as well oh i, w- I would love to take this one Jeff, yeah. um
1: so uh so so first off yes absolutely um yes and uh yes and So, I can take those those like mindfulness and gratitude separately, um and so uh gratitude is something that we're currently actively studying, and so if you think about what gratitude is, um, you can think about gratitude in two different dimensions. You know, one is gratitude as a personality trait. And so, we you know, certain people, generally speaking, are more grateful. Um, and you can also view this as a habit, right? Some people, you know, go home at night and they, you know, have a gratitude journal that they keep. And so uh, we're currently doing research with University of Southern California on this issue. And so the idea is, are people who are more grateful, more prone to flow? And part of this, like one of like the motivating narratives that we found within this, that is, you know, fueling this research, um, is first, we know a lot of these things in positive psychology are correlated, right? Mindfulness practice and gratitude are obviously two correlated things, um, but when it comes to one story that we heard which was i believe it was a x game snowboarder um who was feeling incredibly overwhelmed before dropping into this massive uh, half pipe um and you know going through and you know c- competing against her um uh, her um uh, um uh, competitors and so like her story of this was that, you know, she was sitting up here there on that this gra- um, uh, half pipe feeling completely overwhelmed and then looking out over the crowd and seeing how much support that she was getting from this crowd and just feeling an incredible amount of gratitude for it. Yeah. Um. And she went on to win this competition. And so the idea being that, you know, gratitude, whether it's a personality trait that you have or whether it's in an in situation way that you deal with stress could be one way of reducing the amount of stress that you have and allowing you to tap into flow. And so like, so this is, you know, sort of
0: like reducing where you are, where you are on that y-axis of the challenge skills balance.
1: Exactly. Right. Like if if you're like, so like one reason why, like if you're on like the anxiety side of the challenge skill balance, right. If you're feeling really anxious about something um, and you're too anxious, you have too much either adrenaline or cortisol, right. Stress hormones in your system. Um, If you have too much of that in your system, it's going to block your ability to access flow. And so one way of reducing the amount of stress that you have is by, uh, increasing your sense of social support, right? So how supported am I from the people around me? And so like, if you imagine this woman, like sitting out there looking out over this half pipe before like this competition and feeling that sense of gratitude for, um, all of the support that she's receiving, all of a sudden, all of her psychological safety needs are met because she has this incredible amount of support. And so she is able to deal with a more stressful environment because she has that, um, and so th- this is our hypothesis right like we, we have yet to like fully validate it um but that's where we're kind of going with this and we know that generally speaking you know positive psychology basics means that having a gratitude practice is really really important for general well-being and so that's one half of the question the other half of the question is in terms of mindfulness and so generally we say that you know mindfulness is also you know a, a, a absolute necessity and so we we generally say that either a um, rigorous uh, exercise regimen or mindfulness is a necessity. You have to have at least one of the two. Ideally, you have both of them. And the reason for that is um, to increase your ability to self-regulate. Um, and so it's, a, you know, making your emotions um, have a little bit less control over you. Um, and so people who have a rigorous exercise routine and people who have a mindfulness routine are able to increase their level of self, um, uh, self-awareness, self increase their level of emotional regulation, which is allowing them to the amount of stress that they have when they're in a stressful situation and remain, retain their sense of integrity and, and goal-directedness while they're under that level of stress.
2: Mm. Mindfulness also trains focused attention as well. So it's helpful indirectly in that respect in that mindfulness trains focus. And just one thing I was going to mention, uh, a nice book on this whole topic is called the happiness advantage by sean Aker. he's a psychologist at harvard he had i think the most popular class in harvard for a couple of years on this all of this stuff and on positive psychology and the premise of that book essentially is just that positive affect or positive emotion or happiness is a competitive advantage and it heightens and improves various cognitive faculties like divergent thinking and things like that so doing a gratitude practice doing things that help you self-regulate and facilitate positive emotion also improve performance
0: Yeah. So we talked a lot about, um, someone working in a chaotic environment, right? So someone where, where the, let's just say the environment is not ideal (laughs) for, 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 it's not that flow conducive. How would you advise someone who maybe doesn't have as that much control of their schedule, whether that's someone else is controlling their strategy and the tasks that they do or (laughs) literally like even someone working like in a, in a factory where they, you know, they have very regimented, Uh, what they have to do at certain times. Mm -hmm.
2: One way I like to think about autonomy is that I think we were talking about this at dinner is that you can gain autonomy by um, being able to do things you want to do. And then you can gain autonomy also through cognitive reframing by wanting to do things you have to do. So if you can't change the actual thing, the thing you can change and that you do have control over is your own individual desire And there's different ways that you can manipulate or influence your own desire to do something. But that is an immediate and pretty instant way to gain more autonomy. It's to actually decide for yourself, no, actually, I do want to do this. One way that I think is very helpful to do that is to have some kind of North Star or massively transformative purpose or overarching goal or long-term plan. And then even if the job you're doing right now is shit and you hate it and you can't stand any of the tasks that you have to do, you know that you've chosen the north star you've chosen the thing that you're ultimately working towards and so then it brings the thing that previously felt like you didn't have autonomy within under your own volition and gives you autonomy in it through cognitive reframing so i think that's a helpful immediate way and then obviously overall you want to be working towards getting more actual you know uh, like literal autonomy as well
0: um riffing on that you know we at at, we were talking about this at at dinner um there's this idea that chick sent me i had of of, i think it was him of of like vital engagement yeah right of that sort of so so i was hoping you could do two things one and and maybe they come together like they seem to in my mind we'll see if they if they actually do one what is that idea and and two um I don't know if you two have talked about this together before, but I know you have, Ryan is if you could talk a little bit about the way you frame passion and purpose and make a distinction between the two. I found it to be quite useful the first time I heard it. So maybe you could explain that. Sure.
2: But Vi- I love the notion of vital engagement. Uh, Csikszentmihalyi writes about it in, God, I think it's beyond boredom and anxiety. I can't remember which mm-hmm. one it is. Um, but he doesn't talk about it that much elsewhere. Um, but essentially, it's just... This effect that seems to happen when you're having lots of individual flow state experiences, but they're all under the rubric of some overarching mission or vision or goal that you've set for yourself. That North Star. That North Star, exactly. So what happens, let's say you've got like, I don't know, a a 30 year ultimate objective and you're getting into flow on a Monday afternoon and then again on a Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, outside of the acute or specific flow experiences, the rest of your life, even when you're not technically in a flow state, gets infused with this sense of meaning because it's all entangled and wrapped up and packaged against this overarching North Star that you're ultimately aiming at. And I've, I've experienced this even like extremely strongly myself. People often refer to it as momentum, feeling like they've gained, they're gaining momentum or they're in like a state of momentum. And all of a sudden, you know, getting your bank account set up for your company that you're building is like, it's exciting as hell and yeah. satisfying as
1: hell. It's like, yes paperwork yeah it's exactly the like exactly.
0: form it's like, like obviously yeah, yeah obviously
2: you're not in a flow state where you're filling out the form but it is but it's tied under the narrative that is immensely meaningful and that has lots of flow states populated throughout it that is um yeah that just adds and drives meaning and creates that sense of vit- what he calls vital engagement or what a lot of people call momentum And then as far as passion and purpose, I think ah, Stephen has a cleaner way of defining or distinguishing between them that I've forgotten. But essentially passion is you loving the thing or enjoying whatever the thing is like the activity, the activity. Yeah, exactly. So being passionate about, I don't know, whatever it is, writing and then purpose is that thing, having some kind of impact externally or on others. So then when you take passion and you add it to purpose, it sort of turbocharges the whole process. So you're not just loving writing, but you're loving writing and you're simultaneously knowing that it's going to positively impact the lives of others or whatever you know purpose it may have for you.
1: Right. And and I think one way to balance this out is... So so there's a lot of talk of like passion and motivation versus discipline. Um, and so in the high performance space, it seems like people are kind of split down the middle, right? Where like, you know, the people who are like passion motivation tend to be a little bit critical of the discipline people and the people, the discipline mm. people are like, why are you doing passion and motivation? Because these things, you know, are not long-term sustainable. And so if you're like wake up one day and you're not yeah. passionate, then like you're screwed. What are you going to yeah. do? It, and so like, I think what you're seeing in this space in, um, is a lot of interest in the stoics on the one hand. And so, so, like, you know, Tim Ferriss is really interested in the Stoics. Um, Ryan Holiday is really interested in the Stoics. Like, like especially in uh, tech, you see a lot of this interest in the Stoics, which is about, you know, discipline and rationality over time. Um, and then on the other side, you see um, people who are a little bit more interested in flow. People who are interested in auto, uh, this autotelic personality that we're talking about. Um, and, you know, sometimes we refer to this as, like, the hedonic uh, way of doing something similar because you know flow leverages all sorts of you know intrinsic motivators mm. um, and so I think like there's no right answer right like if if you think of like these two different camps one is looking at you know motivation and passion um, and flow and autotelic personality and the other camp that's looking for discipline um, and willpower. stoicism and willpower exactly yeah. um, and you know regiment like doing the same regimented thing day after day I think these are should be viewed as you know two different arrows in your quiver and you should be able to leverage both of them um, but like right now it seems like, you know, I, I feel like people are way too one-sided mm. when they approach this and say like, Oh, it's either this thing or it's like the, the other thing, right? Like it's either the discipline or it's the passion. And like, you know, the discipline people just hate the passion people, right? Like for some <laughs> reason, like, like you yeah. read Ryan Holiday's books and like, it's just like, you know, like really critical of it. Or you read like, you know, Tim Ferriss quoting like Marcus Aurelius and like, you know, they're like these really heavy hitting quotes about like the yeah. need for like, you know, repetition and like discipline, um, which I think is essentially st- stupid right like you, you should be able to <laughs> yeah. navigate both one of like both sides of that territory well and like when you run out of passion when you run out of motivation you know that's when like the discipline comes in of like oh i'm going to continue to do this thing i'm going to continue to drive productive value for my time on this planet um and i'm going to expect over time that motivation and passion yeah. to return
0: related to this is the idea of grit right like mm-hmm. like uh, yeah. angela duckworth has talked so prominently about that and i love her book right it's that idea of passion and perseverance right Mm -hmm. you need them both right it's a long run Mm -hmm. and what actually related to that one question that i was wondering about is um i think uh speaking about another another sort of luminary in the in the space of peak performance and human potential and like someone who's on the cutting edge of exploring like how far can we take this 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 human thing is um anders ericsson Right. Yeah. So, you know, the, the godfather of deliberate practice. Right. And, um, one of the things I was wondering about is, is the relationship between deliberate practice and flow. And, and the reason this, this just came to mind was, um, I, they seem to be related, but not the same thing in the sense that like, when I think of deliberate practice in a very uh, orthodox definition of that, of what that is, it's sort of this hyper aware level of like feedback. They share a lot of commonalities, but the level of intensity with which you're like self-analyzing and getting feedback in, in a deliberate practice setting, which is exhausting, um, seems kind of contradictory to the the arising of flow, whereas and, and flow maybe is a different experience. I'm just curious what you've seen or your, your thoughts on The relationship between those two things.
2: The way I conceptualize it at least is that, again, the way I kind of view it again is that like flow is sits underneath all of this stuff and then you've got like deliberate practice or again, as we were talking about earlier, you know, the specific skill or implementation of whatever it is that you're doing on top of that. Sometimes you're going to be in flow. When you're doing that, sometimes you're not going to be in flow when you're doing it. The point Anders Ericsson is great at making is that you should just show up and do it anyway Mm. and that you need a hell of a lot of hours probably to get good at the thing. Mm. So I think that they are... Definitely like synergistic and complementary, and it's definitely not like one way or the other. Um, the one thing I am critical of is the whole ten thousand hours notion, yeah, and it's sure. totally and utterly arbitrary. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But anyway, that's kind of been debunked. But, um, I love actually. I love the notion of deliberate practice and the idea of very intentionally getting better at a thing and figuring out how it is that you can improve systematically and constantly at a thing and then that kind of intersects or relates to clear goals also um so i think that they are separate but interrelated and definitely
0: complementary yeah yeah one one way i think uh the way i heard it put i think actually this might have been in, in angela duckworth's book grit was that um deliberate practice was for preparation and flow is for performance in the sense of like deliberate mm-hmm. practice is this very very intense deliberate <laughs> to use the word uh, thing you do as you're practicing and preparing, but then um, flow is is far more likely to be an experience that arises in a performance context where you're not actually doing that self analysis because like that sort of self critical nature is a little bit an- seems to me a little bit antithetical to flow to the arising of flow and. That's very much what you're doing in a deliberate practice setting is you're deliberately looking at that, you know, that critical nature. But then in a performance context, you know, it's the difference between like, you know, somebody on a football team runs a play and then they're looking at the film and analyzing it versus like it's game time. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And. I think you'd probably hit it more in, in the game. than. But, but
1: even when you're in like that period of practice, like I, I would argue that you're still trying to tap yeah, into flow when you're sure. in that period of practice. Because like when you tap into flow, your sense of self is starting to dilate, right? Mm-hmm. And so your your sense of... Um, self-awareness a- acts differently, right? Like your sense of ego, it uh, gets pulled out of the equation. Um, and so you don't want to be rigorously self-critical at the point that you're doing that. However, you know, you want to be able to, you know, go and do whatever your activity of, you know, choice is, right? If it's downhill skiing, you want to be able to, you know, ski that run without any sense of, you know, self-criticism, self-awareness, drop into that state. And then when you're on the lift back up, then you're analyzing what you did and analyzing what you could have done better. And so even within that, like you you don't want to promote this idea that you need to be, I don't know, like overly logically aware of what you're doing while you're doing that. Like you you want a degree of presence, but you don't want uh, a sense of being outside of yourself per se, because then you're too focused on, you know, how it is that you're appearing from an outside perspective. And when you do that, you're losing your ability to actually be, you know, in that moment, navigating that situation
0: you know actually as i'm listening to you that makes a lot of sense because it seems like i i think i had just combined two different ideas one was the sort of uh rational analytical like post game analysis right like, yeah cool, that's go, what i was gonna go, say go watch the film yeah. right do that's it what, afterwards that's, that's what the film yeah. sessions for you mm-hmm. know the next or that afternoon or whatever and then you take the lessons and you go back to the field the next day and practice <laughs> um i think i had combined that idea with the idea of clear goals in a deliberate practice sense of like you know uh, i'm thinking of a musician right who's trying to like a, let's imagine a guitar player who's trying to like nail a really hard pattern a lick on the on the fretboard and in a way that is a clear goal right you are trying to do this one thing and you're busting your ass trying to do it mm-hmm. and i think what i confused was the type of um feedback loop you're getting into there where you're, you're okay i'm not there yet you're tweaking and you're adjusting trying to get there with that sort of an analytical feedback loop and they they do seem different.
2: Yeah. I think you want to separate them sort of similarly to the strategy and execution thing. Like the post game analysis analogy is perfect. And most of the sports psychologists that I know would say as well, that you want there to be as little difference as possible between practice and performance. But I think the reason, um, that, you're more likely potentially to get into flow while actually performing is again actually comes down to triggers risk for example is heightened significantly when actually performing but i don't think you want to do anything inherently different apart from be more conscious of how you can improve but again that usually takes place after the fact of the practice whilst you know going throughout the practice phase
1: yeah there's also something about you that knows like when it's game time which is yeah. like really interesting. And I see this like like in skydiving, like this always happens even with somebody who's doing their very first skydive, you know, a tandem skydive strapped to an instructor um, where it's like you're nervous, you're nervous, you're nervous. But as soon as you're out of that plane, it's like, well, what the fuck are you going to do now? Right? Like you're not going, you're not going back up, right? You can't flap your wings and go back up. Um, and so like as soon as you're actually in that moment, then you have a tendency to drop into it. Um, and so I think that's one part about performance that, you know, really differentiates it from practice where, you know, practice, you're you're allowing yourself to, you know, practice that guitar lick and then like, oh, you messed up that note and so you're gonna stop and you're gonna redo it, right? Like you never do that when you're actually doing that performance. And so there's something about the commitment that's you know associated with that act that allows you to I think optimize yeah. for actually tapping into flow because you know that you know that that it's game moment. time exactly yeah. exactly yeah. And, and there's it. no alternative like you you hit this point of no return and this happens you know every sky dive every base jump like you hit that point of no return and then like something magical happens where like you know the ba- like the external chatter uh, starts to cease and then all of a sudden you're like oh I'm in like this situation you might have you know a perilous situation. Where you know you open up your parachute and like all of your lines are wrapped up and you have to do something about it, but you're not sitting there, you know, overly worrying about it. You're solving the situation because you know you're yeah. you know past this point dangerous. of commitment.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. So we're going to start to wrap up here with a couple, couple more. Um, there'll be some rapid fire questions, but I want to actually ask one last question that's specifically about the work environment for people mm-hmm. uh, and. Maybe I'm actually sneaking in two questions here, so we'll do one at a time. Um, the first one was going back to that challenge skill balance if you if you have people who let's say they're the role that they're playing in a particular job or or company or whatever isn't uh, doesn't have that it isn't that stimulating to them, right? Um, maybe it's it's something where they're doing sort of a little bit more of rote work things like that and just they're not lit up by the the fundamental activity they're they're doing what what can someone in that type of situation do to make their experience better you know aside from just leave and get a different job like if let's imagine for whatever reason they're in that job what can they do to make that job better
2: i mean you can you can tune the challenge skills balance like you can play with it play with it through manipulating or tweaking whatever situation you're in. So for example, I mean, an ultra simple example is you've got to, I don't know, bang out a project by one o'clock or by lunchtime. Just make it that you've got to finish it by 11 o'clock. And then you've artificially raised the challenge level by putting a time constraint on getting whatever that thing is done. And there's all sorts of different ways that you can do that. You know, you can artificially induce heightened challenge by... Doing yeah, tons of different things within the work environment. You can just try and double your target for yourself personally. You could try and again, like complete all your work by lunchtime every day. If 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 it's mundane and boring as hell, I think there's lots of ways you can get creative to make the thing harder. Like ma- making a thing because harder. If you're bored? You got
0: to die off. The yeah, challenge. exactly. <laughs> if,
2: if you're bored, if you're bored, it's understimulating. Find fun ways to make it harder and pose challenges for yourself within the situation.
1: Yeah, I think one tool that's really effective is like imagine the instruction that I think every parent gives to kids, right? When like they're bored and it's like, no, like you figure out a way to make this thing interesting. Right. And, and I think it's a, a lesson that you know, you have to learn at it. Like, like a lot of kids learn it at an early age, a lot of people don't. And you, you have to learn it as an adult, if you didn't learn it as a kid, Um, which is, you know, if I'm in the situation and it's not sufficiently challenging, I need to find a way to make it interesting and challenging for myself. And so mm, you do need to reframe yeah. that situation. Um, And so I, I, I remember being inspired by four hour work week, many, many mm. years ago. Um, and so I, I was working a job that I wasn't, hugely you know interested in or like it was you know a lot of you know admin work that you know at the moment I thought that it was you know beneath me and it was boring and so my goal was to you know take the four hour work week pretty literally and try and complete my work in four hours and then you know spend the rest of you know the day I still had to be in the office but I wanted to you know study this you know like side project that I was working on and so that's exactly what I did and like it actually worked really well to be like I literally got my work week down to four hours and and I would spend the rest of the time uh, doing either freelancing on the side yeah. or studying and like exactly. that, that allowed me to do that but like being right. able to reframe your situation and just being able to I don't know like find complexity and interest in like situations that might not be intrinsically as stimulating I think is, is really important because if you don't learn that skill you're going to be on the hedonic treadmill right you're always going to be looking for more and more like you know interesting environments and like that isn't necessarily the best mindset like you know be, being able to manipulate by reframing is you know a a crucial life lesson
0: yeah talk to me let's pop up from the individual level and actually even above the group level and i want to talk very briefly about the environment itself like what how 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 does one create an environment that is more conducive to flow like just imagine an office environment
2: yeah um, yeah obviously ultimately it comes down to practices and policies and there's lots of different specifics one big thing is encouraging asynchronous communication. I think so that you're not breaking people's focus on whatever it is they're doing by forcing them to both come in and sit in a meeting at the same time. Um, so that's a big one. I know a lot of you know tech companies do that. Uh, emphasizing and building a culture around focus and deep work is a big one. I think in many respects, offices, at least during certain periods of the day, should be more like libraries. Um, In terms of silence and in terms of just people who are actually focusing on, you know, executing, getting things done. And then related to that, obviously batching communication into certain set periods at base camp and Jason Freed, Freel, Freed. Freed, yeah, he, he's gr- all of this stuff. He's amazing on. Mm-hmm. They have they're phenomenal, phenomenal yeah, overall. Their library practices. rules, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. They're like a phenomenal case study on flow, actually, and, and what we would recommend a company to do. Awesome. Um, yeah, we'll link to so, that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. Um and he does a lot of that stuff. Yeah, asynchronous communication, batching, again, like sprints, you know, because that minimizes the amount of communication that needs to happen throughout the actual week. You can let people execute. Stand-ups are good, so you know you know you knock out the sync at the start of the day and then you get into it for the rest of the day. Being very conscious and cognizant of timing meetings, setting things up from a high level structurally so that constant back and forth communication is minimized and isn't that much of a requirement. Not having policies around you know needing people to have like turnaround times for email or slack messages and things like that obviously giving workers as much autonomy as possible holding them to performance uh, standards rather than to you know process standards so you know delegating outcomes rather than delegating tasks i think is a big one that enhances autonomy and allows for people to be creative as far as how to get them done um Yeah. So I think there's all sorts of different ways to deploy it specifically. And once you understand the fundamental triggers and what's required to be able to get into flow, you can creatively think about how you can deploy this stuff within your own work environment as effectively as possible.
1: Exactly. And just to add to that, um, obviously no open air work environments, you know, like, you know, obviously there are real estate considerations to this. And the reason why, you know, people put a bunch of, you know, desks side by side is, you know, more financial reasons than anything else. Um, But that just kills productivity. Exactly. Exactly.
2: The, The amount of people who have to go to coffee shops to actually get work done or like, say they can't come in for a day a week so that they can actually hit the deadlines that they've been delegated you know like offices at least in my experience are often amongst the most unproductive places to be so you know you want your office to be somewhere where people can actually get work done and i know that sounds incredibly basic but mo- most aren't you know like i know so many offices where it's six people sitting around a table but facing each other kind of thing and talking every minute or two or you know they just check in on something
0: like it's just so when you're talking about the uh you know minimize all that back and forth communication that would interrupt people from their focus right but then uh, i was just looking at scanning my notes really quick and looking at um some of the flow triggers and and i one of the ones on group flow was constant communication so how is that different
2: well so you you see your that's when i say batching communication when you have specific a specific chunk of time dedicated to communication then you want to try and make that time conducive to group flow and ideally facilitate a group flow state within a specific brainstorming session but the the situation we're talking about where it's back and forth constant bits of communication you're not going to get group flow, and you're not going to get individual flow you're just getting fractured attention and no real solid group flow or good communication and no real individual Flow or actual focus. So you're kind of like you're caught between two ends of the spectrum.
0: Yeah. Is there is there such a thing as like group flow in a normal meeting or like are, are, is like the weekly staff meeting just just a waste or what, what would you is there not is there a way to have sir, that be flow or what do you do I think
1: there's a lot of value to that because you know everybody's speaking a, a, a like the same language they have similar expertise and so a lot of people get into group flow when they're in that sort of meeting, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's really you know helpful to have everybody engaged not just one person dictating the schedule um, and so like say agile stand up meetings I think are really really effective because everybody's bringing you know their tasks to the fore they're bringing their blockers and you know they're all speaking a common language so I, I think there is a lot of value yeah. to that and then um, I, I guess like two things to add to what Rihanna is saying like I just want to echo the autonomy piece I think the, the the much of the progress that you get much of the benefits you get is out of giving your uh, employees a high degree of autonomy and if you can't trust your employees then why did you hire them to begin with yeah. right and so like, like, like micromanagement just absolutely yeah. kills flow yeah. yep. um, and then the other piece is uh when it comes to immediate feedback and so like feedback on a weekly clip or a daily clip Mm -hmm. is ideal Mm -hmm. not none of this quarterly or yearly review cycles Mm -hmm. by the time you get a yearly review Mm -hmm. you have no idea what it refers to like none of that stuff's actionable It refers to like a Mm -hmm. version of yourself that existed six months ago right yeah can't Um, remember it (laughs) exactly and so being able to do this like um like using weekly um like cycles and so for instance 15.5 is a a fantastic tool for this um and so uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, right? So at, at the end of you, you fill this out once a week. And so it's supposed to take you about 15 minutes to fill out and your manager about five minutes to go through it, which is hence the name 15 five. But it goes through what the goals were that you defined the previous week. Um, You give an update on those, you define goals for the next week and you talk about your challenges and your successes and you can add arbitrary, you know, high fives to other people and what else on top of that. I find that to be so effective because it keeps everybody goal driven. It get, It's a really good way of upward reporting as well at a very high level. Um, but that level of feedback allows you to deal with blockers and challenges at a much faster clip because like the goal was to be able to like you know speed up business cycles as much as possible right you know the mantra and the the like the value is you know speed up the time to failure Um, and so like you want to be able to speed that up as much as possible and getting those immediate feedback cycles um, in place in a way that's helpful and relevant and actionable um, is another fantastic way to improve workplace culture
2: right exactly like having well set OKRs or KPIs. Accountability is an interesting one as well because accountability comes with autonomy or at least has to if it's being, you know, rationally given at least in any way. So giving people numbers to own, things like that. I know Sam Walton with Walmart, what they do or did, I don't know if they still do it, within their big mega stores, is they'd make each department a sub-department and have it have its own set of books and have it have its own targets and then have the store manager for each sub-department um, like the sport, you know, the sporting goods department or whatever, run that, uh, that, department singularly and be held accountable to hitting numbers for that specific department within the overarching store so that that person is given much more autonomy over that you know sub component of the overall mega store
0: yeah I love that <clears throat> that ties in beautifully with some of the, the prior episodes of this podcast like uh, one in particular that comes to mind is the conversation with Christina wiki about creating um, high-performing autonomous mindful teams and, and a lot of it echoes like it, it, it's' i'm sort of seeing this this is very interesting as a conversation because you're like oh this is sort of the psychological side of maybe a lot of reasons why that works mm-hmm. and uh that's is a very interesting one and just to your say, thing you were saying connor about uh 15.5 actually just as an as a shout out they have a great podcast as well that uh oh, do they really? check out. Okay. Yeah, it's called the they started it sometime last year it's called the best self-management podcast it's excellent <laughs> nice uh, so nice I'll shout to check out for them. Out. Um, big, yeah. big fan of their of their show so um First of all, I just gotta say thank you guys. This has been such a, such a fun, like, I don't know, I, I've been in flow in this conversation. It's
1: been a little mini group flow. It was yeah. How many, it's been what, That's like true. three hours now? No,
0: it's been almost three hours. Oh you know, we, were, we were jamming before we even hit like yeah. record. Uh,
1: That's so for nuts. the listener, like, we just,
0: you just got to be part of our group flow. So first of all, thank you guys so much for your time, for your expertise, for sharing, uh, your experience and your wisdom. And, and it's so exciting. Um, and I'm really a huge fan of, of the two of you and what, what you're all, what you all are up to. Um, so my last question is, um, is there anything, uh, do you have any, for people who are listening to this, is there anything you'd ask of them, any asks you want to make of the audience and and where can they engage more with you?
2: I'd say check us out on, on collective.com. We've got a newsletter there. We send it out every week. It's always super high value. At least we think with articles and content and ways to learn more, and then you can check it out, check us out on social as well. So flow research collective on Instagram, Facebook, same thing the website newsletter yeah exactly all that sort of thing
1: yeah yeah I, I guess like the takeaway i'd like people to leave with is like yes they are programmable yes you can you know use these tools in order to get more flow in your life um and there are any number of books and resources and we can link those in the show notes um but usually people ask for you know what's the common denominator for um resources to check out um and i always recommend um uh, rise of Superman, uh, by Stephen Kotler in the original book flow by Chick at me high. Um, that one's a little bit more academic. And so it depends on, you know, how, how um, uh, much you want to work with, you know, a little bit more technical writing. And so rise of Superman is, you know, very compelling narratives about action sport athletes. And then flow is going to, the book flow is going to scratch that itch if you're more of a technical person. Um, but if you have that sort of mindset where you view yourself as, you know, someone who can change given the right, um, amount of time and effort, you can manipulate, All of these knobs and levers to get a ton of flow in your life. You won't be in flow all the time, but you'll get a hell of a lot of it.
0: Yeah. Right on. Well, guys, thanks so much for the time and keep doing what you're doing.
1: Thank you. Thanks, man. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.